Hey, I've got some exciting news for you. For nearly a decade, the Social Media Marketing Society has been helping marketers like you to keep up with the changing times. This is our private community just for marketers, and the doors are open right now. When you join, you get access to ongoing training and become part of a welcoming community of marketers who are just like you. Learn more at smmarketingsociety.com. Again, smmarketingsociety.com. Welcome to the Social Media Marketing Podcast, helping you navigate the social media jungle. And now, here is your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Social Media Marketing Podcast, brought to you by socialmediaexaminer.com. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for marketers and business owners who want to know what works with social media. Today, I'll be joined by Christopher Penn, and we're going to talk about social media ROI. How do you measure it? Why has it been so difficult for us to measure it? What do we need to know about this concept that we struggle with, which is measuring ROI? We're going to go deep into it. I think you're really going to enjoy it. By the way, if you want to reach me, I am at Stelzner on Instagram or email podcast at socialmediaexaminer.com. And if you're brand new to the show, hit that subscribe button. I was recently at Social Media Marketing World, and I had a chance to connect with some of our best customers. A lot of them listen to our podcast, just like you do. Not everyone knows what I'm about to share with you. We do something special here at Social Media Examiner. The best of the best of the guests that you hear on the Social Media Marketing Podcast not only teach at our conference, but they're also part of our secret society called the Social Media Marketing Society. Each month, our top-tier guests who have been on my show are invited to train inside our society for an exclusive group of marketers who are just like you. The training is designed to help you go from being a passive consumer of content to a marketer who is in active learning mode. So if you're ready to make real progress with your marketing, you're a perfect fit for the Social Media Marketing Society. Join us by visiting smmarketingsociety.com. We've got a really big sale that is ending very soon, so don't delay. Again, visit smmarketingsociety.com and join today. All right, let's transition over to this week's interview with Christopher Penn. Helping you to simplify your social safari. Here is this week's expert guide. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Christopher Penn. If you don't know who Chris is, you need to know who Chris is. He is the chief data scientist at Trust Insights. He also hosts the In-Ear Insights podcast. His latest book is AI for Marketers. Chris, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I was going to say, if you don't... Chris is probably one of the most technical and analytical people that I know. And we're going to address a topic that I'm excited about because I know many of you, including myself, have a challenge with this, which is how the heck do we calculate our return on investment for social and for marketing in general, but in particular for social. So Chris, what I would love to ask is, first of all, why do you think that tracking ROI for so many marketers is difficult? So, and this gets into sort of the definition of ROI. We need to understand what this thing is because in a lot of cases, especially 
for executives, they tend to use it as a catch-all term that means results, which is totally not what it is. ROI, or return on investment, is a mathematical equation, is a financial equation. It is expressed in dollars, and the outcome is typically a percentage. And the formula is immutable. It is earned minus spent, in parentheses, divided by spent. So the money you earn minus what you spent to earn that money divided by how much you spent is return on investment. And it's a financial term, right? So it means that you have to know what you earned and what you spent. Now, if you, for example, you have spent $5,000 and you earned $10,000, right? Your return on investment is 50%. For every dollar you put in the machine, $1.50 came out. This is so hard for marketers for a couple of reasons. One, marketers don't do a great job of understanding what they spent. And two, marketers don't do a great job of understanding what they earned on how their work helped a company earn money. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? Like earn minus spent divided by spent. Yeah, like a a grade schooler should be able to do that. Exactly. But think about what goes into all these. So what have you spent? Now, when you think about social media marketing, Mike, and and you think about spending, what do you think when you hear the word spent? Facebook ads is the first thing that comes to mind. Facebook, yep, hard dollar costs is what marketers think about. And there's the direct dollar spent, Facebook ads, Google ads, Twitter ads, Instagram ads, and so on and so forth. We we say ads a lot. But what else goes into your marketing? You pay for a website, you pay for electricity, you pay for, in your case, an office, right? You have a nice building. And employees, too. Uh, That's the big one that people miss. Employees cost money. Every minute that an employee is doing something on social media is an opportunity cost that employee could be doing something else. It may not be, you know, it could be sales, it could be admin, it could be something. But this, when you start to unpack spent, you realize it's a really tangled web. Your internet access, your hosting costs, your software costs, all of those things go into spent. So when we talk about social media ROI, A part of that means you're probably taking someone from the finance department out to lunch to ask them a whole bunch of questions about what marketing spends. And then of that, what does social media spend for those hard and soft dollar costs? So that's half the picture. And that part alone takes some research, takes some getting into it, some getting used to, right? Absolutely. Here's the other half. What did marketing earn? And this is where everything goes off the rails for most marketers. Because of a lack of understanding, a lack of availability, and a lack of information about attribution done well, done properly, and we'll talk about this in in more depth in a bit, you don't know, most marketers don't know how much they help bring in revenue earned to the company. So if you don't know what you earned and you don't know what you spent, you can't do ROI, right? There's simply no no way to do it. And so what marketers tend to do instead is they default to something much simpler like return on ad spend, which is a different calculation, different math, different formula and everything. And again, people tend to kind of conflate return on investment and return on ad spend. They're different formulas. Likewise, when executives say, What's the ROI on your on their marketing? And they're just looking for like how many leads do we generate? That that's not ROI. That's that's results. And results are important, but not the formula we're talking about. Got it. So 
and and this is fascinating as as you know we've been running a research study for oh my gosh uh since 2009 so i don't know how many 10 or 11 years and uh measuring roi has always been one of the top challenges that marketers have faced even today which is kind of fascinating because it seems like for sure in 2020 it's a lot easier to measure some of these things than it was 10 years ago wouldn't you agree it should be. <laughs> I mean, we have all the analytics tools now, right? The social platforms like Facebook provides their insights and you've got Google Analytics and people understand at least some sense of them do understand how to track things using UTM parameters. I mean, it seems that we're in an age of data. So maybe we have too much of it. Maybe we don't know how to make sense of it. What's your thoughts? So I like that expression that you just used there. We're in an age of data. That's like saying we're in an age of ingredients, right? Well, if you don't know how to cook, then all the ingredients don't matter, right? You you have a pantry full of ingredients and you don't know how to cook. Guess what? You're going to McDonald's. So, <laughs> Yeah, or you're going to have some nasty food. <laughs> <laughs> but if you are saying we're in the age of data and you have all these analytics and data from every platform, great. If you don't know how to analyze data, you are functionally in the exact same position and you are resorting to whatever you can hack together as opposed to knowing how to cook lets you use those ingredients. It always comes down to three things, right? You got to have the ingredients, you got to know how to cook, and you got to have the right, you know, pots and pans and stuff to be able to do it. If you're missing any one of those things, you're out of luck. So you need the the knowledge, you need the tools, and you need the resources. The same thing is true with marketing data, right? You, you need the data, you need the tools, and you need to know what you're doing. So let's zoom in a little bit on the social side of this, right? So obviously we've got the paid stuff, which is a little easier, I would guess, to track the earned or at least the spent. But what about the organic social side of that? I mean, doesn't that get a little even more confusing? It can. Believe it or not, it's actually getting simpler to measure organic social because organic social media performs so badly that it's effectively a zero. It effectively, you know, for, for <laughs> about half of our clients, okay. the return on organic social media is zero. It does nothing for them. Does that mean we shouldn't do it? I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. Well, so there's two parts to that. When we say social media, particularly organic social media, we have to broaden our definition of what constitutes social media. This is a fun little rat hole to go down. When you say social media, a lot of people instinctively think Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, right? The big obvious, yep, that's a social network. That must be what we're talking about. But think about what social media is. By definition, social media and a social network is something that has value because of the network effect. If you write a blog, and you do write a blog over at socialmediaexaminer.com, it has intrinsic value, right? It has value. That post has value, and that blog would be there whether or not five people read it or five million people read it, right? Obviously, there's more business value to you if five million people read it, but it would still be there. A social network by the network effect only is valuable with other people. It's like owning, well, nobody owns a fax machine anymore. Back in the day, for, we still for, have those, one. Under, <laughs> for those of you who don't have gray hair, um, <laughs> no, it, it's like owning a smartphone or a telephone, right? If you are the only person in the world who has a phone, guess what? It's useless, right? Once two people have a phone, now you can call each other for those odd times when you want to talk to another human life. And the more people who get phones, the more valuable your phone becomes. It's a network effect. Social media is the same thing. The more people who join a social network of any kind, the more valuable it becomes because the people are the product uh, and the people are the value. So what's a social network? It, it, yes, Facebook. Yes, YouTube. 
But think about everything else where you have those interactions. So if you are a programmer, GitHub is a social network where you can exchange code and idea with other people's. Stack Overflow is a social network. Reddit is a social network. Heck, even some of the adult entertainment sites are social networks. People can interact and leave comments and do all sorts of things. So if we broaden our minds to what our definition of a social network is, then suddenly organic social media starts to look an awful lot like referral traffic instead of social, and it then becomes part of our, our attribution equation again. Got it. So what I'm hearing you say, I think this is what I'm hearing you say, is that when you share something on a social platform and people engage with it and or share it and or click on it, then that is something that has something that can be measured. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Exactly. Think about it. You have Slack. Slack is one of the biggest social networks in the world. Every Slack instance is different, but it's a social network, right? A Slack channel with you only in it is boring, right? right. Discord is a social network. Twitch is a social network. Dungeons and Dragons is a social network. World of Warcraft is a social network. And these are all places where you can create interact, engage, share, like, comment, all these things, these behaviors are social networks. Now, this raises an interesting problem. If you're a marketer and you're trying to figure out what's the social network for my niche or my vertical, you have got to get really good at things like UTM tracking for Google Analytics and stuff because in many cases, these niche social networks don't integrate with analytics of any kind. They don't. They may not even have analytics, and nor do they have any interest in providing them. And if you don't do it, you'll have a bunch of traffic coming to your website or your owned properties, and you will have no idea what's coming from. In Google Analytics, that's what's called direct. When you see direct traffic in Google Analytics, substitute the word don't know because there's no attribution data. For those of you who use services like Slack, when you share a URL in a Slack channel and someone clicks on it, there are no tracking codes. Slack doesn't append any. And so when that visitor goes to your website, they show up as direct. The source is direct and the medium is none. Google says, I don't know where this came from. I have no idea. So I'm going to say it's direct traffic and, and there's no attribution. Hmm. And that means that you as the marketer now have no idea is, uh, is what I'm doing in the Slack channels where I'm engaging. Is that working? So the only way you would know is if they became a customer and you asked, how did you find out about this, right? And then you'd be able to attribute, attribute it somehow at that point. Exactly right. All right. So we talked about ROI is earned minus spent. So if I earned 10000 I spent 1000 That's a net of 9000 divided by the amount spent. And that ratio that you come up with is the ROI is what I'm hearing you say. Is that correct? That's exactly right. That is ROI. Now- what do we do, you know, with that information, right? Well, actually, I know it sounds so simple, but like, it's not that simple, obviously, right? When we start thinking about all these channels, right, Chris, we're talking about not just one channel. Most businesses are using many different channels. They're using Twitter, they're using YouTube, they're using Google, Instagram. Some of these channels don't even allow you to track traffic offsite, but how do we like attribute properly where that earn came from? Before we talk about that, let's back up even one more step okay. and talk about when you should be using ROI. Okay. Return on investment is a comparative metric. 
right? If I say my return on investment on Facebook is 70% and my return on investment on Twitter is 50%, it is a comparative metric where my return on Facebook is 70% this month, but last month it was 90%. You care about return on investment when you are in a, a stable business environment, meaning you're not trying to aim for growth, you're not trying to do something crazy, and efficiency is the most important thing. You have maybe limited resources. You have $1,000 in your social media ad budget, and you want to know where can I get the biggest bang for my buck. That is when ROI matters. Ah, yep, I love this. Keep going. And you have to, and it is always a comparative metric. To say like the ROI of a Facebook ad is 42%, with nothing to compare it with, they're like, so what, right? That that means nothing by itself. It always has to be accompanied by something else or compared to something else. When you compare across channels, like the R, if your ROI of Facebook is 25% and the ROI of Google ads, say, is 44%, logically, if you're focused on efficiency, you should be doing Google ads and not Facebook ads, right? However, there are going to be times when ROI simply does not apply. Right now, and we're not going to get into any of the, the, the meat of this because that's an entirely other po- different podcast. Right now, we're ramping up towards elections in, in November of 2020. There is no ROI of an election. There's a binary outcome. If you're a candidate, you either are elected or you're not. But there is zero ROI because there is not a financial outcome. And so you would have to use other metrics to gauge the effectiveness of what it is that you're doing. But fundamentally... There's no earned other than I won the election, right? So that's an example. Another example would be if you are, say, like a nonprofit, like a church, and you care about things like community engagement. Guess what? That's not a dollar outcome. Because there's no dollar outcome, ROI simply does not apply. So you have to be clear about what your goals are and how you're going to measure those goals. And if those goals are not expressed in a monetary amount, ROI does not apply. Don't try to use it. It's just it's not going to go well. Well, this is this is where it gets really interesting because let's just take Facebook ads. So many times, at least here internally in Social Media Examiner, we will take a look at our UTM parameters for the ads that we're spending and we'll we'll see how much did the ad cost us to run and how much revenue did it generate. And that's all we look at. But that's not the entire equation. If we're truly looking at ROI, we're skipping a whole bunch of stuff, aren't we? You sure are. You are measuring return on ad spend. What revenue do we generate from our ad spend? You're doing return on ad spend. And that's not a bad thing to do because it's a very simple equation that allows you to understand more easily you know, how your ads are performing. Return on ads, ad spend or ROAS is simply your, your earned divided by your spent, right? Very different equation. And when we ignore the cost of the either the agency, right, that we're working with or the employee and or both, if we're using both, right, and other aspects, we might be actually losing money, right? Yes. So, And that is one of the greatest dangers of return on ad spend because people conflate it with ROI. ROI takes into account the cost of earning the money. Whereas return on ad spend does not have any of that in. That's one of the reasons why when you see people talking about return on ad spend, the numbers seem astronomically high. Like the the general best practice, the generally accepted best practice for return on ad spend is your return on ad spend should never go below 400%. So for every dollar you put into an ad, you should get $4 back. The, the generally accepted best practice for return on ad spend is aim for 500% ROAS because 
you're not taking into account all those other costs. You're only looking at the ad spend and the revenue generated from it. Well, and you're also assuming that you have a high profit product as well, right? Because if you're selling a product that doesn't have a lot of profit in it, you could actually be losing money because take social media marketing world. We know how much it costs us per ticket because it costs millions of dollars to put on that event. So if we don't actually look at the the net profit, right, of that unit that we sell, <laughs> then we're also not looking at, I don't know, I mean, is that, am I going deeper down a trail here or is that part of ROI as well? So that is ROI and that is not in return on ad spend. So you're right. If you're only focused on return on ad spend, you could be losing your shirt literally because you have negative ROI, even though your return on ad spend is is positive. Got it. So just a short list of the things we should consider is obviously the cost of whatever the product is that we're selling, right? Especially if it's a, a product that has a high cost, right? Labor, what else? I mean, what are the other basic things that we should consider when we're calculating the actual costs? So most larger organizations will have essentially sort of what is a an admin overhead cost of an employee. So you'll have your, your employee's salary, and then you'll have that overhead. And that is something that you can then amortize out to essentially, you know, if you have an employee and, you know, 50% of their time is spent on social media, you have that employee's salary, which if you divide by 2,080, gives you their hourly rate. And then you have the overhead cost, which is typically... You know, if you're in the United States, uh, because we have a really jacked up healthcare system, your cost of healthcare is going to be you know, up to 25, 30% of that employee's salary cost. So add those two together, divide it by 2080, and you've got the effective hourly rate. And then essentially your cost for social media of that employee, however many hours they spend on social media times that effective rate is what you're spending in time as money, resource uh, opportunity cost on social media. And that goes into your costs as well. So generally speaking, do you find that it is the labor that tends to be the biggest cost with most of the people you're talking to or the cost that's most often overlooked? It's the most overlooked one. And it is certainly the largest one because, again, people don't think about opportunity costs. They right. don't they think about that hard dollar spent. I got to give a thousand bucks to Zuckerberg. All right, fine. And they don't think about, OK, and how much time did it take you to set up that that 20 part Facebook ad campaign? Right. If you do ROI well. Sometimes what you figure out is we should just be hiring an agency or a contractor or somebody to do this for us because, A, we're not good at it, and B, it's a much higher opportunity cost to try and grow that capability rather than just outsourcing it. The general rule of thumb that we always say to clients is if it's not part of your core business and there's a high opportunity cost, spend the hard dollars so you get the soft dollars back and you get people focused back on what they're supposed to be doing, which is your product or service. So what else do we need to be thinking about? I think that you had told me about this new attribution tool from Google, because it sounds to me as if part of this problem is also properly attributing the outcome. Am I right? Oh, yes. So a big part of that earned part is the attribution is how much did social media impact conversions? When you look at standard Google Analytics, you will see five attributions built in. First touch, last touch, linear, time decay, and model-based or position-based. Those are the ones that come out of the box. Most of those, most of the time, are not useful because they offer a very limited view of the customer. Think about what somebody 
goes through. In your case, when somebody's considering, should I go to social media marketing world? What does that customer journey look like? They talk to friends, they do some research, they read reviews, maybe they read past blog posts, they check out your social media feed, they go to YouTube and maybe watch some session videos from previous shows. They ask in a Facebook group, hey, has anyone ever heard of this conference? Is it worth going to? And they talk um, to their boss to get approvals. They talk to their boss to get approval. So there's many, 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 many steps to a, a essentially what is a high for them a high risk transaction. That's their customer journey, and it's going to look wildly different from person to person. When you use the built-in models in Google Analytics, and you defaults to last touch, meaning that whatever the last thing somebody did, maybe it was they saw the Facebook ad, they clicked on it, and and they bought their ticket in stock Google Analytics. That Facebook ad gets all the credit for converting that customer. But we know, we know there was way more to that. But none of those other interactions were given credit. Two of the models, linear and time decay, try to distribute credit to other interactions that Google Analytics can see as a way of essentially saying with the linear model, we don't know what's working. So we're just going to give even credit to every single interaction and assume that every single interaction is equally important. And the, the one that built in is the most useful is time decay, which essentially is a half, a seven day half life. Meaning that if you did something in the last seven days, like clicked on a Facebook ad, that's going to get the lion's share of the credit. But the longer your customer journey goes back in time, the more we'll give credit to channels of the past, but it'll be diminishing amounts of credit. So maybe if you clicked on a Facebook ad nine months ago, that ad will get a tiny little bit of credit, but the email that you just opened last week, that'll get much more credit because there's an assumption with time decay models that, that recency matters. So those are the ones that are built into Google Analytics. They all suck. Well, let me ask you this. Which one should we be using? Because even though they all suck, I would imagine most of us are limited to those, right? So it's funny you mentioned that. There are some options. If you can't use anything else and you have no capabilities whatsoever, time decay is the least bad of the models. If you have no capabilities, no advanced analytics, and you're not, and you're just not good with the software. Just choose time decay and stick with that. That will at least help you understand, like from an assisted conversion perspective, the different impacts of various channels. Wait, real quick, just to be clear, do we find this? All this stuff is under the assisted conversion section, right? Under the conversions category, is that right? That's correct. On the left-hand side is the fourth menu down. Now, what's the default one? It's not time decay, or is that the it's default? Last touch is the default one. I see. But it's still not going to, changing this is not going to have any impact on your UTM data, right? You're still going to see the last touch stuff when you look at your UTMs, right or wrong? Uh, so UTM data just attaches attribution information to that particular visit, that session. If you come to my website five different times from five different you know, mechanisms in the data, I'm going to see f five different UTMs, right? I'm going to see you open that you clicked on the email, you clicked on my Twitter post and so on and so forth. And that's recorded in essentially the logs within Google Analytics. The attribution models essentially take those logs, digest them down and then apply the model that you choose to help you decide is a channel working for you or not. But the data is, is all there in its raw state inside Google Analytics. But the e-commerce, the money, right, that actually came in that you're tracking, is that going to get distributed differently if you choose time decay? So for example, you open an email, you clicked on it, and then later you saw a Facebook ad, the Facebook ad was last. With the time decay thing set, is that going to have any impact on me still being able to go in to see whether in Google Analytics whether that Facebook ad brought in the full value? 
Does that make sense what I'm asking? It, it makes sense what you're asking. And if you're looking at either at assisted conversions or you're looking in the, the, the model comparison tool, it will make a difference because it will tell you, are you giving too much weight to one channel or another, too much importance? Um, right. uh, what percentage of that dollar deserves to go to Facebook or to Twitter or to email? So there is some that those models do apply there. Okay. Okay. So I took you off uh, down a little trail. So you were saying, interesting that you ask, time decay is the least bad. Were you about to say something else? Is there something new coming from Google or what? So it's not coming from Google. It's new in the interface as of about a month-ish or so. Uh, on the left-hand side, towards the very bottom, you're going to see a new little button called attribution with a little beta tag next to it. That is Google's slightly watered down Attribution 360 product. So if you're familiar with the history of Google Analytics, they bought a company called Adometry a number of years ago and it had a machine learning based attribution system. And first they sold that, you know, uh, as Attribution 360 for a reassuringly expensive cost to mostly major corporations. And they have since taken and watered it down and now it's available to everyone to at least try out. And it allows you to, to build what's called a data-driven model using a machine learning algorithm called Shapley Game Theory to essentially try and figure out, again, what channels are getting credit. And the way it works, the simplest analogy I can make for how Shapley Game Theory works is that it's like a poker game. If two people, if you and I sit down in a poker game, we play poker together, I may bet a certain amount. You may bet a certain amount, and you know the, the game may go a certain way. And then let's say, uh, let's say Phil Marchand sits down at the table, right? And Phil's a high roller. Um, his behavior will automatically cause us both to probably bet more than we would just playing with each other, right? Right. And so, the more people who sit down at that poker table, not only does each person change their behavior, but the table as a whole changes behavior as you go around the table. So Google Analytics with this attribution product effectively does the same thing. If Facebook sits down at the table and email sits down at the table and Twitter sits down at the table and YouTube sits down at the table, is the conversion more likely to happen when Twitter sits down at the table or not? Is the conversion more likely to happen when YouTube sits down at the table or not? Hmm. And by gathering this data, it helps to assign a better understanding of the importance of each channel, not only by itself, but also in relation to other channels to say, you should do more of YouTube and less of Instagram. Fascinating. One question I have for you is, we are finding that it's harder and harder. Email is a big part of what we do. We have a very big mm -hmm. list, like, I don't know, 375,000 people. We're finding that we're getting less revenue off of our email, but when we don't send email in a week, we get less revenue overall. And when we do, we get more, but it's not attributed to email. So I've come up with a hypothesis that sending an email is better than not sending an email because there is some sort of compounding effect. Because it seems like no matter what, when we send an email, we get more sales. It could be the word of mouth effect. I don't know, but how do we attribute it for something like that? So now you're starting to get into behavioral attribution, and that is an entirely a next level. So there's two things going on there. One, how clean are your tracking codes in your emails? Very clean. Every single one is custom. I got all UTM tags, and they're Everyone. sure they're all working. Yes, absolutely positive. We are like we're crazy fanatical about that. Every single email has a custom UTM, and sometimes even more than one inside the same email. And do you have a marketing automation system that's tracking at the individual level uh, that, yes. whether the person opened? Yeah, 
strip. And have you done a segmentation to compare the people who open emails to the people who do not open emails to see if they are the ones who are showing up at the website and buying more stuff? Yes, I think we have, but I don't think we do it as often as we probably should. Right. That's the first place I would start. And that's something you could do, you know, painfully in a spreadsheet where you're going to get a cleaner answer, but it's going to require a tremendous amount of uh, legwork and technology is with a different kind of machine learning technique that takes all of your marketing data, every activity that you've got going down to ideally day level, if not hour level, but ideally day level, mm. uh, and puts it in what is effectively a gigantic spreadsheet with the outcome from that day as sort of the target, the response column on the far right-hand side of the spreadsheet, you know, number of tickets sold that day, for example. And then there are some really good tools that will essentially build a custom machine learning model. One of those tools that I recommend, uh, full disclosure, my company is a, an IBM business partner. We earn money if you buy from us, blah, blah, blah. There's a tool in called IBM Watson Studio Auto AI. And you load your giant, huge, enormous table in there. And you tell Watson, tell me and build for me a predictive model for what sells tickets. And Watson Studio will go through and analyze every possible combination of variables. Email sent that day, press releases sent that day, tweets about you that day. I mean, whatever you put in, direct mail pieces, phone calls that people made, the number of times that Phil Marchand played banjo that day, whatever the case, whatever data you have, you put <laughs> it in there, yeah. and it comes up with a model and tells you the what's called predictor importance. How important are the different variables in combination or, or alone towards that outcome? And you may find that just the act of sending email has a mathematical relationship to that outcome. Yeah, because it's it's looking for the correlation between all these things is what I'm hearing you say, right? And it can predict the likelihood that this, this thing results in a better outcome than something else. Is that what I'm hearing you say? It, this thing either by itself or in combination, because one of the things that can happen, mm. uh, and we know this as humans, as individuals, is that that email may be the stimulus to go do something else like read a blog post. Oh yeah, I forgot. You know, I was going to read the social media examiner blog. And then you see the uh, the thing on the site and then late, and then the retargeting kicks in. And you're like, ah, I got to go. I, I need to go buy my tickets. So there may be three or four things at work together that create that lift. Fascinating. So what about attribution windows? This is always a fascinating thing for me. Like, should they be seven days? How many days should they be right? At what point does it decay enough that we just ignore it? <laughs> it depends, uh, I, which is something I say all the time. The the generally accepted best practice is how well they ask you, assuming it's not confidential, how long from first touch to bought the ticket is your sales cycle in days? It's kind of highly variable. It depends on whether or not the person works for someone else or is buying it on their own behalf, like they're an independent consultant. I think generally speaking, it could be as little as seven days and as much as 30 days. So uh, I would take the upper end 30 days, double it, 60 days, that's your attribution window. For everything? Ideally, if, if you can break your audience down to that granular level, then yeah, you apply, you have different attribution windows per audience segment, which you can do in Google Analytics if you can segment your audience with user ID. If not, it's fine. The worst case scenario is you find the longest reasonable conversion window, you double it, and that's your attribution window. So tell everyone, does Facebook and does Google allow us to alter the attribution window? What's the default and how do we change it? 
So the default attribution window in Google Analytics, the campaign timeout is 30 days, which you can extend out to 540 days. Facebook, I don't know. I don't spend a whole lot of time on Facebook. Do you think the decay in Facebook is much faster possibly and maybe we don't need that kind of a window? It depends on on how you're using Facebook. For If you're using Facebook uh, and you're using a lot of the retargeting features, you could be looking at just as long a window, especially for higher, uh, higher risk purchases. Hmm. Uh, I know uh, some higher education institutions have literally multi-year windows, right? They're wow. trying to uh, you know, woo uh, students as they enter out of high school, just develop brand awareness. And then you know, they, they know they're not, not going to make a school decision for three years. It depends. Um, so in Google Analytics, where do we go to change the attribution window? Do you know off the top uh, of your head? That's in the property. It's going to be in settings, session, and campaign setting timeouts. I'm doing this from memory because I don't have it open at the moment, but it's it's in there. It's in the property. Got it. So what I'm hearing you say is we should probably double what we think is the typical window just so that Google Analytics is properly tracking stuff. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Right. Uh, uh, well, it should be double what your upper end uh, sales cycle is so that you're catching the anomalies. You're catching the outliers on the upper end because of the attribution. You know, if, if someone converts in seven days and your attribution window is 30, oh, no big deal. Right. Okay, yeah. you, you've caught 100 percent of conversions. But if your attribution window is seven days and it takes someone nine days, you've lost the inf- two days of information there. I think we may have shortened our attribution windows. So I think that might explain some stuff too, right? Because like, obviously if the buying cycle is longer than we think, then we ought to make sure we've got the attribution window open long enough. That's really interesting. Yep. So I know we've gotten really techy here. I want to bring it back to the human level. (laughs) Not that we're not, but you know, off of Google analytics and onto the boss, right? So uh, how do we talk to the boss about ROI? Those marketers that maybe struggle talking to the boss. It depends on who the boss is. <laughs> Let's just take the worst case situation and talk through that. And so the worst case situation is you're talking to the CFO and the CFO is a financial person. If you do not present ROI in a financially correct manner, you're going to get your backside handed to you and uh, your budget cut to zero. That's the worst case scenario. So how do um, we, what do we need to present to them so that we can confidently say the work that we're doing is justifiable? First things first, you need to understand what is the goal of the company. If the company's goal is growth, like you you have to be able to show growth in audience and do not show ROI. Show the growth numbers that you've put on the board. Hey, we put 500% more leads in the hopper this quarter than we did last quarter, right? That's what, if, if your company's goal is growth, that's what people want to see. If your company's goal is efficiency, again, going back to the function of ROI, if your goal, company's goal is financial efficiency, then that's when you trot out ROI. But more importantly, not only do you trot out ROI, you trot out, here's how we measured ROI through whatever reporting period you're in. And here's the decisions we made along the way to maximize it. We were 14 days into our 90-day campaign and we saw Facebook's ROI was declining. We stopped Facebook and we pivoted to YouTube and we got higher ROI. When you're talking money to the money people, you want to show that you've made the most responsible use of their money possible by focusing on the highest ROI. And that's how you use this stuff. You show people... I did the best that I could with the pile of dollars you gave me. Give me some more and let's see if we can continue to improve this. Now, let's take the scenario where you're talking to a boss who's not a CFO, not super techie. How would we talk about ROI to that person who might be just more subjective in their decision making? 
Subjective actually is the worst because in a lot of cases, somebody has a very strong opinion that is not backed up by data, and you may as well just bang your head against the wall. Uh, if the boss says, I don't like Facebook, Facebook is the worst. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> right. Mark Zuckerberg Mark Zuckerberg and Vladimir Putin are in charge of Facebook. Okay, cool. So here's at that point, you don't even talk about the channels. You just talk about the results you got. Like, hey, the, the number one question that I like to tell people is this. What are your KPIs, right? And the, by the way, a reminder, KPI is the number that you either get a bonus for or you get fired for. Everything else is a metric. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what is your boss's KPI? What are they going to get fired for? Or what are they going to or what are they going to get kudos for, right? Exactly. What are they going to get their that year-end bonus for? It once you know that, that tells you what metrics you need to be presenting because if they are being held accountable to a P&L, for example, then guess what? ROI has to be part of your reporting because your ROI impacts their P&L on both the profit and the loss side. If they are measured on gross revenue and nothing else, don't show ROI. Show that you boosted the growth, right? And all you need there is the earned side and maybe return on ad spend. So the metrics you choose to present to the boss are, should be based on what your boss cares about. And that's been the truth forever. But when if you were to look at all the major metrics that like a CMO or a VP or, or whoever is being measured by the, the top line numbers, take all the metrics that you know, ROI, website visitors, growth, and say, how can I draw a solid line between this and my boss's number? And if you can't make a causal relationship, don't show it to the boss. Chris, tell people what you do and who the ideal people are that you work with. <laughs> I am the chief data scientist of Trust Insights. We are a, I call ourselves a lot of things, but I say we are a marketing data detective agency. If you've got a marketing data mystery, we're going to come in and help you solve that mystery, whether it's Google Analytics attribution, whether it's building a machine learning model for advanced attribution, whether it's, hey, what happened last month? Or did we set this thing up correctly? We tackle that for all of our customers. Our customers are wildly different. We have a chain of progressive mega churches as, as one of our customers we have a large automotive as another customer we have a one of the largest uh, retailers on the planet as a customer and what they all have in common is they know they have data it kind of going back to where we started they have the ingredients in some cases they have like brand new viking stainless steel kitchen but they can't cook so mm -hmm. they say can you come in and cook can you come in and and show us how to cook uh or can you tell us, like, you know, why is this thing not working? Well, because you're out, the goal you're trying to make is soup and you've got a frying pan. So this is not going to go well. Uh, <laughs> so the marketing data equivalents of that, that's what we do. Where can people find you? Uh, you can find everything you need to know about this at trustinsights.ai. And if people want to reach you on the socials, where would you send them? Uh, I'd send them to my personal website, ChristopherSPen.com. Awesome. Chris, thank you so much for sharing uh, your insights and wisdom and demystifying a lot of the ROI uh, stuff, if you will, <laughs> for me and our audience. <laughs> I don't know if I demystified it or made it worse. <laughs> <laughs> thank you again. Thank you. Hey, don't forget to get your tickets to Social Media Marketing World. Get a chance to hang out with Christopher Penn, me, and so many others. Simply visit socialmediamarketingworld.info. And if you cannot travel, get your virtual ticket. If anything was mentioned in today's episode and you didn't grab it, we took all the notes, socialmediaexaminer.com slash 390. New to this podcast, hit the subscribe button. 
This brings us to the end of another episode of the Social Media Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you next week. I hope you make the best out of your day. And may social media continue to change your world. The Social Media Marketing Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. Hey, just a quick reminder, join the Social Media Marketing Society today and level up your marketing for your company or your clients. Visit smmarketingsociety.com to find out more.